0: We've all heard the saying, home is where the heart is, but can the houses have hearts? Maybe even souls? Can events that happen within their walls be so impactful that the houses become living entities all their own?
1: You totally made that up. We are a bi weekly history podcast that tells you the wildest, craziest, nuttiest stories from yesteryear ones that sound like somebody must have totally made them up, but they're all true. And we especially like the ones that have supernatural, paranormal, woo woo elements. So those parts may only be true to the people who live them. We don't go for the lore says or the legend goes, though. We want dates and names and all the facts we can find. And I am Nash, and I am Tiff. We are your hosts. As you heard in the intro for this episode, we are talking about two houses that seem to take on lives of their own. The ones now known as the Winchester Mystery House and the Amityville Horror House. And you may be thinking, haven't y'all done haunted houses already? Well, sort of. I can't say much about it because it'll spoil you. But it's, it's, it's it's not this. You're gonna have to go listen to Buckets in the Attic. That was less about the houses. If I can kind of allude to <laughs> what it was that way i'm not gonna spoil it one bit of business we are moving our publishing day and you probably already seen a post about this by the time this episode is going to go out but we're moving our publishing day to the weekends to saturday or sunday hope y'all don't mind it just works better with our schedules totally lot one more tiny thing y'all go check out the podcast historical af because i got to be a guest on one of their more recent episodes Because depending on when this is coming out, it'll probably not be their most recent, if that makes sense. So it's, but it's one of the more recent episodes at the time of this publishing. And I was on there and I got to tell a story. The episode number is 84 and the title is The Good, The Bad, and The Mummified. So go check that out. I was freaking adorable and charming and witty and all of the things that you know I am. And humble, clearly.
0: It's true. It's true. Toot that horn, Nash. Toot it.
1: No, I'm humble. I wouldn't dare do that. All right, Tiff is going to kick us off, so let's get rolling.
0: All right, here we go. I'm going to talk about Sarah Winchester. And uh, if she was alive today, I think she would love Pinterest. I think that that would be absolutely 100% her thing, and we would all follow her. (laughs) Pray tell. (laughs) Because her house is such a popular tourist destination, and it's because she built it like a crazy person. All right. I'll, I'll explain. I'll explain it all in extensive detail. I went a little wild on this one, but that's okay. You guys needed to know all of these things.
1: That's okay. Yeah, because I want to hear more. I think everybody, well, most everybody, I say that, you know, very hyperbolically, but it's, it's known, right? W- we know that this house, is. it's known that it's this massive Structure that just kind of kept growing, you know, she just kept adding on to it. But, but legit, other than that, I personally don't know Squat, so hit us.
0: All right, so the Winchester Mystery House is a popular tourist destination, it's the subject of many ghost story features and the subject of the movie Winchester, which did star the wonderful Helen Mirren and was kind of an eh movie, I guess. (laughs) I didn't see it. I'm just going by what I read. (laughs) I'll just give you kind of a quick recap of what happened at the Winchester Mystery House. Sarah Winchester was the widow of William Winchester of the Winchester Firearms. And after his death and her subsequent inheritance of the Winchester Fortune, she was guided by a medium to move to California and build a home for herself and all the spirits of those who had been shot and killed with the Winchester rifles. She doesn't want to be tormented by all these spirits, so she spends the next almost 40 years of her life constructing a wild and crazy home to confuse them and keep them happy and away from haunting her. It's a very special kind of bullshit story. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) And of course, you know, being us, I'm gonna break it all down. So, let's start with Sarah Lockwood Party. She was born in either 1839 or 1840 in New Haven, Connecticut. She was the fifth of seven children. Six of those children actually survived past infancy, and that left her with two older sisters, one older brother, and two younger sisters. She was actually the second baby of the family named Sarah. The first was the child that did not survive, and she was nicknamed for her paternal grandmother. And within the family and in letters, she actually went by Sally but she's known historically as Sarah, so that's what we'll call her. Her family was pretty well established within New England. They could actually trace the roots back to the original colonies, and if you dig deep in her family history, there are even connections to Yale and Goodyear Tires. They had done pretty well down the family line. They were upper middle class, but her father, Leonard, he still had to work to support the family, and by trade he was a woodworker, but there were a few factors at the time that were against him being able to make a living with that. One was that there was a very large fire in New Haven that destroyed a good chunk of the homes and businesses in their neighborhood. And then the next was that the U.S. economy kind of took a crap in the 1830s due to overprinting of paper money. So he ended up taking what was meant to be a temporary job in the city bathhouse, and that temporary job lasted about 10 years. But he really couldn't complain because business at the bathhouse was good, thanks to people being appreciative of personal hygiene at the time. And he did make a good choice to stick with that stable job because by 1847, the economy picked back up and he was able to find success as a craftsman and a carpenter. He owned and operated Leonard Party and Company Mill and Woodshop. And what they did was make a lot of small parts that were actually sold to be used in larger machines and especially carriages. They also worked on homes and decorative carpentry projects. And that was also going pretty well. Now that was thanks to a combination of the Industrial Revolution and a housing boom during the reign of Queen Victoria. Her tastes favored and reignited interest in Italianate and Regency-style architecture, which had an emphasis on vertical elements, two or three-story homes with tall windows and porches, and detailed ornamentation that kind of bordered on over-the-top. You know, you're thinking of those like gingerbread-style homes, lots of, you know, the shutters, the wood shingles, very ornate. A running theme during the Victorian era was a prioritization of form over function. Now, England also hosted the first World's Fair in one thousand, eight hundred and fifty-one, which highlighted a lot of international crafts workers and helped to spread the styles all throughout the world. Sarah's father was able to take advantage of this, and he produced lots of details used in these styles of homes, including you know spindles, moldings, tracery, and wainscoting. Sarah herself was really well educated. She was an accomplished musician. She was fluent in four languages, and she was admitted to the Young Ladies Collegiate Institute at Yale College. She was really, really quite beautiful. She was very petite, and she was actually dubbed the Belle of New Haven. She was also really shy and reserved and quiet. Now you can imagine with all those kids, her home was pretty loud and busy. (laughs) But their parents did make sure that they were all educated, and it was actually a quite progressive household. They held meetings for abolitionists, The early ASPCA, and they ended up kind of separating themselves from religious affiliation after the elder parties kind of had a falling out with the Baptist Church following the death of their very first child. Her two older sisters kind of hung out together and they both ended up married off. She was too old to socialize with her two younger sisters, who also kind of paired off together, and her brother was being groomed to take over the family business. So Sarah was able to keep to herself, concentrate on her own interests and she was often found wandering around her father's business and just kind of taking in the woodshop. On September 30th, 1862, she married William Wirt Winchester. Now let's just backtrack for a moment and get to know him before we continue. The Winchesters could also be traced back to early colonies, but the family history put them in lower standing to the parties. Kind of going through each generation, it seemed that there were combinations of deaths, births, and general misfortune that kept them from being able to really thrive. They did what they needed to do to get by, and family members became pretty scrappy and hardworking. They took on various work and jobs wherever they could find it, including woodworking and clothes manufacturing. Oliver Winchester, father of William, along with his twin brother, went into business together. For a while, they found success at Winchester & Company, selling hats, shirts, suits, and other clothing items. It went well until they started, you know, banging out a bunch of kids with their wives (laughs) and realized that the store just wasn't going to cut it to support how many there were between their respective families. Eventually, Oliver spent enough time making clothes that he realized how badly men's shirts actually fit. He worked on things and he patented a new curved shoulder seam shirt design. And then was loaned money to start a shirt factory in New Haven. At this point in time, mass manufacturing had already been introduced. Eli Whitney, who most of us here in the States remember from our middle school history lessons as the creator of the cotton gin, a machine which mechanically separated cotton from the seed, had actually himself moved up to New Haven and used his skills as machinist to establish the Whitney Arms Company, and as he brought back methods of mass manufacturing, many other industries started to use it and needed workers, and New Haven was established as an industrial hub. So William, he was born June 22nd, 1837. He was the second of four children. And for some time, the parties and the Winchesters were actually neighbors. The kids paired off and played together. And it seemed as though William's older sister got along with Sarah's older sisters. His younger sister played with her younger sisters. And William and Sarah were certainly aware of each other, but didn't necessarily mingle. William was being groomed to also take over his family's business. He was being educated, and he was traveling in the meantime. And the shirt company was doing exceptionally well for itself, with a net worth at the time of $1 million. So, wowza. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's unclear in the history there as to how they started courting. But they were a good match. And as I noted earlier, in 1862, William and Sarah were married. So, how do we get from making shirts to the rifles? Well, (laughs) William's father, Oliver, was not only smart enough to create and patent that shirt design, but he also was able to invest in other businesses. One business was the Volcanic Repeating Arms Company, which was started by Horace Smith and Daniel Wesson before they were Smith and Wesson. Volcanic Rifle Manufacturing actually took place in New Haven, but it didn't do well. And the company ended up bankrupt. And you're like, Tiffany, that's a bad investment. Why did you say he was a smart investor? Because he totally turned that shit around. He changed the name to New Haven Arms Company. He kept on the firearms designer who tinkered with the design of the volcanic rifle, changed it and the ammunition to make it much easier to use, created a 16-shot lever-loading rifle, And it worked well enough to be used by the Union armies in the Civil War. So they got themselves a government contract. Boom. Money. Now, after a few years, that weapons designer and Winchester argued over compensation. So (laughs) Oliver Winchester was like, all right, fine. I know how you designed it. I've got it figured out. I've even got some of my own ideas for how I can improve on it. And in 1866, he restructured the company to become Winchester Repeating Arms Company, pushed out the old designer, modified that design, and released the model 1866. And then in 1873, they released model 1873. And these guns are often referred to as the gun that won the West. And this is because so much (laughs) history all at the same time. The Transcontinental Railroad had just been completed in 1869, so there was a lot of movement out west. There was also the Gold Rush. And he had testimonials from people like Buffalo Bill, Annie Oakley, Billy the Kid, Theodore Roosevelt. So you've got a lot of people headed out that way for expansion. They want a rifle that will work well for hunting and protection with quick loading and firing, and they got it. Whew, history. There we go. So hooray, we've got two established New England families who have both managed to overcome some hardships and do exceptionally well for themselves. But what's interesting about that? Well, let's get into some tragedy because we all know that's where the goods are. In 1866, the same year that the Winchester Repeating Arms Company took off, Sarah and William welcomed a daughter. Annie Party Winchester was born June 15th. Unfortunately, she suffered from marasmus and was not able to process calories, and she ended up dying on July 25th. The couple never had any other children, and I didn't see anything that indicated if that was by choice or by circumstance. Then, a few years later, May 11th, 1880, Sarah Pardee, Sarah Winchester's mother, died just a few days before she turned 72. Then Oliver Winchester died December 10th of 1880, then, March 7th of 1881, William Wirt Winchester died of consumption. Oh, the consumption. Oh, the consumption.
1: Mark that on when we get our bingo cards and you're re-listening episodes. There you go. You knew it was coming when you heard 1800s. You mm-hmm. knew somebody was going to have TB.
0: The consumption. So after the deaths of her father-in-law and husband, she inherited 50% ownership of the company, plus a cool $20 million in cash which adjusted for today would be about a half a billion dollars. I
1: was about to say, she's in Bezos territory. Well, not Bezos, but she's getting, well, she's the Bezos of the day. Close to at least,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I totally did. I was sitting there trying to look up like celebrities that it would be comparable to. I did come across one source that said that she earned after the revenue that the company still took in, she was getting $1,000 a day. Which, in today's money, is about $26,000 a day.
1: Oh, yeah. She was, she was loaded.
0: Loaded. So much Ha money. ha. Guns loaded.
1: Ha ha. Okay. <laughs> I know. It's why y'all like me. Okay.
0: <laughs> Looking at her life story, seems that the general consensus is at this point, Sarah is just grief-stricken. But that she has some hope thanks to your favorite movement and mine.
1: Spiritualism.
0: spiritualism yay
1: oh god
0: a medium by the name of either adam coons or Coombs, depending on the source he advised her after channeling william hmm, <laughs> to move out west gave her you know the line about the spirits of those who were killed by the rifles and how she's taking blood money and she needs to appease them and atone for all of the the money that the family earned on their deaths However, there's nothing to prove that Sarah was ever in contact with this guy. He was in New England at the time, but there's no indication that she ever met up with this Adam guy or that she had this interaction that spurred her to go out west. So why would she leave her family home and cross the country? It's a lot simpler <laughs> than, uh, than most people probably imagine. It's just because she already had a sister and other family that lived out there and she wanted to be close to them. At that point in time, land was available. It didn't cost much, not that that would have mattered to her anyways. And it was just kind of time for a change of scenery. Eventually, the brother Leonard was the only one of the siblings that remained in New Haven. And so Sarah was surrounded by sisters, brothers-in-law, nieces, and nephews, all while she was out in California. So she gets out there in 1885, 1886. She purchases an eight-room farmhouse, and she starts to have it renovated. It seems like it was likely that she did this so that she would have a house for herself and for all of that extended family that I mentioned. And soon this little farmhouse just became unrecognizable and it became an extra large Queen Anne style mansion full of intricate details, woodworking, decorative glass. It expanded at one point having a seven story tower and having the main part of the house up to four stories. So talking about some of the features of the house, I haven't visited there, so I'm going off of lists and stuff that I found online, trying to highlight a few things. I'm not including everything because there's so much. There are just so many details, and they're actually still finding more stuff today as they kind of go through and restore parts of the home. So this house, I don't even know why everyone keeps referring to it as a house. It's a fucking... It's not, mansion doesn't even seem like the right word. I don't Sucker. even know. Compound or something. It
1: looks, (laughs) it looks aerial because I went ahead and started pulling pictures, aerial shots. It it looks like a compound. It's just connected.
0: Yeah, it's just this massive structure. It's twenty-four thousand square feet. There are one hundred and sixty-one rooms, forty of which are bedrooms. There's one finished ballroom. There is one unfinished ballroom. And when they go through it, there are ten thousand windows, two thousand doors, fifty-two skylights. 47 stairways and fireplaces, 17 chimneys, 13 bathrooms, six kitchens. There are luxury fixtures all around the mansion with crystal chandeliers, gilded doorways, stained glass window handcrafted by Tiffany and Co.'s first design director. And the wood used for the construction was redwood, but Sarah didn't like the look. So she actually had all of it covered and painted with a different wood grain and finish. The house was equipped with modern luxuries in plumbing, lighting, there were multiple elevators, heating and cooling systems. I mean, she, she had the life and why not? <laughs> so as you can imagine, building that much of a structure and putting that much detail took a long time. It was decades. Work went on until it was affected by the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906, which the mansion did survive thanks to the floating foundation, but it didn't survive unscathed. And this wasn't even the only property that she owned out there. It's just the one that most people know of because it's so odd. She actually had five properties in California, one of which was a houseboat. And that one has its own little bit of weird history because a lot of people claim that she kept it out of fear of a second biblical flood and it was nicknamed Sarah's Ark. Uh, <laughs> I kind of like that. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The truth of that, though, is just that houseboats were common among rich socialites, and she was just kind of part of the norm, but didn't spend as much time on it, and so it was docked and just kind of became another mysterious property of hers. So, you know, I mean, I haven't mentioned any extreme religious or spiritual beliefs. I haven't come across or told you about a descent to madness, anything like that. So where did all the suspicion of this come from? Well, essentially, people are assholes that's what it comes down to. Fuck all the Sarah Winchester haters. I mean, she was, she was filthy rich and it's excessive how much wealth she had, but she was not alone in that. There were a lot of people who had done well in the gold rush, other industries, and a lot of wealthy people who had migrated from the East and from the Midwest out to California. What made her stand out was her East Coast style. The area around her property was very rural, middle-class. So you can imagine that somebody spending money to build a home with hundreds of rooms kind of made them wonder, who does this bitch think she is? (laughs) And they saw as the construction went on with fruit and nut orchards, with Japanese-style horticulture, an English garden with statues, all surrounding this behemoth of a building with mixed-up styles and decorations. They were judging her. I mean, I judge my neighbors on far less. so. (laughs) So, yeah. They were, they were kind of curious about her. And as they started to talk, rumors spread, and eventually newspapers started to write about the odd, wealthy, reclusive socialite. She happened to be a hot topic during a time when yellow journalism became popular. And here's the deal with that, based from a Britannica article. It's just going to be a quick summary. Yellow journalism is the use of lurid features and sensationalized news in newspaper publishing to attract readers and increase circulation. The phrase was coined in the 1890s to describe the tactics employed by the furious competition between two New York City newspapers, The World and The Journal. Now, William Randolph Hearst, that guy, he challenged the newspaper supremacy of Joseph Pulitzer and even bought out his popular cartoon artist out from under him. So this led to the papers just one-upping each other with this crazy, just outlandish, wild newspaper headlines and articles because they needed the sales. They needed to be better. And it affected journalism all around the country where they started to run stories that were more gossip than fact. Glad that we grew out of that. But there are all these articles which are really more editorials and kind of gossip articles written about her. The first one was a February 1895 article in the San Francisco Chronicle, which painted her as superstitious, and according to a source, the writer wondered why Winchester kept adding rooms, turrets, and towers to her already enormous house. Perhaps, the story went, she was afraid she would die if construction stopped. Whether she had discovered the secret of eternal youth and will live as long as the building material saws and hammers last or is doomed to be disappointed as great as Ponce de Lyon in his search for the fountain of life is a question for time to solve. And this particular article was really popular, picked up by other newspapers around the state. But, you know, of course, that's all speculation. <laughs> I mean, that's not news. That's just somebody writing, hey, this is kind of weird. This is what I think. Now, aside from just trying to sell the papers, there was some bias with the local papers against Sarah. There was another person who had transplanted herself across the country who was also building quite a large estate in the area. And in my opinion, she was a lot more sensational than Sarah. Mary Hayes Chenoweth had moved to San Jose after her family struck at Rich in Wisconsin. She was a self taught teacher. And one day while she was in her classroom, she was struck by the force. And she was pushed down to her knees and given the power for spiritual insight. She basically claimed that she had almost like x ray vision to kind of see what a person was struggling with and their ailments. What? what,
1: I'm sorry. What she had was a seizure or (laughs) a mini stroke.
0: (laughs) It was the Force, Nash, okay? The Force. And she used her powers to heal people. And this could be anything from a minor injury to tumors and paralysis. She provided these services free of charge. <laughs> Sorry, I have, <laughs> I have so many lightsaber jokes. I know, I know. absolutely
1: like, flying force. through my head. And, the
0: power and, of the force.
1: Oh my God. And there's like, <laughs> there's something, there's a baby Yoda, Mandalorian, something in there. <laughs> Did she wear her hair in buns? Did she? <laughs> Look, I can't okay so the force I I apologize it was a stroke okay okay. so it was a mini stroke okay go ahead the force all right so yeah she could heal people okay
0: hey listener come closer no really closer just a little bit closer that might be too close one step back there perfect you're perfect how do you feel about murder how do you feel about spooky shit And how do you feel about coffee? If you feel warmly toward any of these, then join us every Saturday on The Dark Roast. Join us where our souls may or may not be darker than the coffee we drink. We can be found on podcast, Stitcher, oh my fucking god. (laughs) We can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and Google Play. Thank you. she could heal people. She would, she would take what was bothering them and she would absorb it into her body and they would be healed. She provided these services free of charge because she had also used the power of the force to pinpoint two areas in Wisconsin that had rich veins of iron for mining. (laughs) And I love this one source that says when her sons protested, that they knew nothing about mining. She reassured them that they would soon meet someone to help. One of their clients turned out to be the only geologist who had explored the Iron Range and agreed immediately to show it to them. Convenient, lady. Convenient. She's also really heavy into spiritualism because she's not just a healer, but she's also a spiritual teacher and advisor. It's interesting though, of course, that she had lost her first husband and a son, and then she remarried, and her second husband was actually 21 years her junior, but then he also died, so she wasn't doing too well with the healing on that front, but that's okay.
1: was she trying to heal with arsenic or with <laughs> okay, look, I have questions i'm mm-hmm. not I'm not casting aspersions I just
0: I know, I know right okay
1: because actually tidbit arsenic was used as part of embalming fluid back then it basically. Starting in the Civil War, as a matter of fact. So I'm in the right ballpark. And if so, if you killed somebody with arsenic and it was, you know, somebody at some point tried to determine it later because arsenic has a long life, it and it actually seeps into the soil, into the ground, possibly in the groundwater. It's bad. It's bad. That's why, like a lot of these old cemeteries, you need to kind of dig them up and relocate or reseal the caskets or cremate them or do something. Because it's bad. So, if you killed somebody with arsenic, you might very well get away with it in terms of somebody trying to come back after the fact and go, Well, exhume the body. Let's test for arsenic. Well, good luck. Because it's in the embalming fluid. Mm. I know. I'm just, okay. I
0: don't know.
1: Okay, moving on. Sorry.
0: I'm just, yeah. No, I, I get it. I get it. There are a few things about her story where I'm like, lady. Yeah, you're going to love her last words. But anyways. <laughs> okay. In 1891, the family completes the first version of the Hayes Mansion, a, quote, 50-room Queen Anne-style building with turrets, cupolas, and balconies. It boasted its own electricity, school, and library. And at the estate, she ministered to workers and neighbors. Her compound, because that's what this is, it's a, it's a fucking compound, was called Edenvale, And quote. Here she spent most of the next two decades editing and producing a journal called True Life, overseeing the family's business affairs and receiving admirers and patients. In the early 1890s, she treated an average of 3,500 people per year, most of whom doctors had abandoned as incurable. As I said, she would move tumors from patients' bodies to her own. Cripples would throw away their crutches and danced on the lawn. And terminally ill, people went on to live for decades. And then when that mansion burned to the ground, she replaced it with a 41,000-square-foot mansion. 240 room structure. It's massive. I mean, Sarah's place was 24,000 square feet. So Mary's place is even bigger. And you can imagine the talk about this. But Mary was protected from the gossip and the bad articles and the bad reputation because her sons, those amateur miners, they were busy joining in the world of politics in the area. They were allegedly in the progressive movement, but they also kept company with some pretty corrupt politicians, and they were also really tight with the local papers. They eventually took ownership of them, so they were able to deflect any negative attention. And it really wasn't easy, because I did kind of spend more time than I needed to trying to find information about Mary without going down too much in that path, but I couldn't really find a whole lot about her. But when she did pass in 1905, her last words were, I have never wronged anyone. Okay, well. Suspicious. Susp- Suspicious. <laughs> yeah, right? like that's
1: what the dust protests too much type of <laughs> thing. Because my, my knee jerk is like, who you harmed? Who do you think you've harmed, that
0: is? Yeah, why do you need to say it if you haven't? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a kid. I didn't take any cookies. Did anyone ask you if you took cookies? Do you feel guilty about not taking any cookies? What, what's going on here? Oh, that lady. All right, so back to Sarah. Poor Sarah. Poor Sarah, you guys. She's taken the heat for building opulent buildings in this area. And then we add to that that she never got over her shyness. Just as she had when she was a young girl, she kept to herself. Her family, the housing staff, and the construction workers were really the only people that she interacted with. And the neighbors were really upset by her lack of socializing. An 1897 article from the San Jose Evening News says, Mrs. Winchester is about 50 years of age. In business, she is shrewd and very socially elusive. When she first went into the neighborhood, people in the vicinity dutifully called on her, but she never returned a call and seldom recognizes any of her neighbors. She, of course, did socialize, but like I said, just with family and a few close trusted friends. And then those other properties that she had, Her sisters lived in those residences, and she also had a niece that lived with her that she supported. She was actually supporting almost all of the family out there and giving them monthly monetary allowances. She was also really progressively minded. She just wasn't very active with the causes. When she was growing up, the house was usually busy with lots of different guests who were trying to promote different causes. And her one sister that lived out there was very outspoken and was even the state of California's first humane officer she fought for animal and child welfare and was busy making like citizen arrests <laughs> just making sure that justice was done you know good for her for sure but it really did not help Sarah's reputation that she had such a loud sister but that she didn't have a whole lot to say for herself she wasn't a society lady with a cause she was just one who was seen as wasting money so if she wasn't socializing and being all friendly with her neighbors what was she up to Well, you know, growing up, she was allowed to wander around and observe her father's business, and she was surrounded by skilled tradespeople, and that stuck with her, and it interested her, and damn it, she had the money to explore all those interests, so that's what she did. Not formally trained at all, she oversaw all of the construction of the house. There were no formal architect plans, it was just kind of whatever Sarah ordered them to do, they would get done. (laughs) She hired various teams to work all throughout the day and night to work on projects around the mansion. She would often change her mind or she would forget a design that she had already approved or she would have one crew work on a project and another crew work on a different part of the project and they didn't always line up. She would just come up with stuff that she thought was kind of neat and then rooms were built and then they were rebuilt. She just had so much to oversee and really didn't have any idea what she was doing aside from the basic knowledge that she picked up while around her family. Off the top of
1: your head, do you recall, I mean, I know this lasted, what'd you say, like a decade, but
0: what ballpark age was she? Well, let's see. If she had been born in 1839, she's like almost 60, you know, by 1900.
1: I mean, it would. she's in her 50s. It would be pretty early for dementia. That still is cutting it pretty early mm-hmm. but I'm just I was just curious if I mean people can be forgetful and it not be dementia but and hell she could have had ADD for all we know
0: right right you know I mean she just she was just kind of flighty that's kind of what I get from it is that she was like oh that's interesting let's do that and then you know it would just not necessarily work with the plans that she had going in the next room like she has this very ornate stained glass window that doesn't actually face outside. And that's because she had that room completed and then later on decided that she wanted another room put up next to that one. And it just closed off the window. But she wanted what she wanted and she had the money to make it happen. So what are some of the other issues that people had with her? Well, again, they go to her privacy. People really had a problem with how reserved she was and how she didn't really want to be seen. She had shrubs and greenery planted to obstruct people being able to see into the home and onto the property. And a lot of people thought that this was because she was arrogant, but it was really just because she was shy and she was, quote, reluctant to have her rudimentary skills as an architect inspected. And that in spite of her seeming callousness to public opinion, Mrs. Winchester is really a tender-hearted, shrinking woman, and public inspection of her work has been evaded by discouraging all visitors. There's even a story that Teddy Roosevelt showed up to try and pay her a visit, and he was curious about the house, but she didn't answer for him either. So... (laughs) she really was not about to show anybody what she was making, just because she was kind of nervous about it. So she's really extra with her property. She declines socialization with her neighbors. I mean, what else can be said against her? They had a problem with all of the building that she did up until 1906. Then everyone had a problem with her declining to do further construction after 1906. I had mentioned earlier that the mansion was affected by the earthquake that struck that year. That seven-story tower toppled. Much of the fourth floor was damaged. And Sarah herself had actually been trapped in a room and couldn't be found right away. So, once things settled, when she was rescued from that room, and after the earthquake, she kind of had a change of heart and decided that the damaged areas would be cleaned up, debris would be removed, but it would not be reconstructed. So, rooms, stairways, chimneys, halls, they were all just closed off. She was like, nope, we're not building up any higher. We're just going to kind of continue expanding and working on what we have here. And this kind of right here, this little point, debunks one of the main myths of the story, that she had construction going constantly until she died, that she was afraid if construction stopped, that she would die. There were actually a few times that she paused construction on the house, including one entire summer when she decided it was just too hot for it to be worked on. So the main construction of the home was really done by 1906, and after that it was upkeep. And after that earthquake, she decided not to spend as much time at that property, instead living mostly at her other home in Atherton, California. But even so, the bad press continued. Those articles about her being superstitious, having seances, about the ghosts haunting the mansion, they were repeated, they were expanded upon, and they called out alleged ghost confusion and different things like that. A 1909 article about Winchester ran in the Chronicle that notes not just the supernatural, but the general wastefulness of her home. And quote, The lonely heiress to millions has found her sole pleasure during the last seven years in directing the efforts of workmen who are called upon to construct one month what they destroy the next. So, the home and the woman behind it are just a constant source of gossip and ridicule, and it did not let up for the rest of her life. And Sarah Winchester died September 5th, 1922. And she died as she lived, as just a quiet, kind person. Before she even headed to California, she had donated money to a hospital. And then before her death, she funded the Connecticut General Hospital Society's William Wirt Winchester Hospital Tubercular Clinic. She not only supported her family, but her close staff. When her beloved driver, who had been with her for over 25 years, passed from a heart attack, she provided a home and support for his widow and for his children. And after she died, she actually gave most of her wealth to charity. All that remained went to her niece, and most of her real estate holdings were auctioned off. Her attorney, Frank Lieb, said, Mrs. Winchester was all that a woman should be and nothing that a good woman should not be. If there is a heaven, there she must surely be. Now, it's really kind of sad because if some of the neighbors and other people in the area had tried to know her and not just be suspicious of her, they would have understood her desire for privacy. She was grieving, yes. She was notably shy and reserved just in her personality, yes. But as she grew older, she was afflicted by rheumatoid arthritis. And it caused her hands to become quite deformed and gnarled, so she wore gloves to cover them. She also wore a veil over her face all the time because she had so many missing teeth that she wanted to hide. She was really upset because, I mean, she had been the belle of New Haven, and she had not been treated kindly by age.
1: Bless her heart. I know, right?: yeah, Bless her heart. Yeah.
0: Ugh. And housekeepers, staff, family, they immediately spoke out after her death against the claims of spiritualism, ghosts and superstitions, but they were shouted down. One thing that I thought was kind of interesting about the construction and about her motives is that it's suspected that her constant employment of construction workers not only served her creatively as she built up her dream house, but was her way to support the local economy. In 1893, America was hit with a depression and unemployment soared reaching 40% in some states. So by constantly having work done on her house and her mansion, she provided employment to those who may have been jobless otherwise. It was never stated explicitly, but it was mentioned as a possible motive in a couple of my sources. She was kind of villainized as being so excessive when people were suffering, but in turn, because she, you know, was so excessive, she was able to provide for them.
1: And also it's a way of still keeping people at arm's distance because they're your employees, but still having people around.
0: hmm Yeah. Now, after her death, a lot of people assumed that the home was going to be bought and torn down because I mean it was just it was just a crazy house. It was not livable. But it was acquired by John H. Brown. He was a theme park worker who designed roller coasters. I mean, who oh boy, if somebody is going <laughs> to take over this house, it's going to be somebody who can definitely market and sell it. Now, he had actually designed the backety Back Coaster, which caused the death of a woman in Canada. So he and his family were kind of like, we're just gonna back off from this a little bit, <laughs> let the heat die down. So they took off to California and they leased the house. And of course, with his skills from the amusement park crowd to play up the weirdness, he turned the house into an attraction. And I'm sure it didn't really take much because all those neighbors who had been kept out and were so curious, they were totally lining up to go and see what the fuck was going on with the Winchester house. Less than two years after Sarah's death, newspapers were beginning to write about the mansion's supernatural powers, about how she had built the house to trick the ghosts. And there was even a visit by friend of the show, Harry Houdini. Yay! Yay! He was on his tour doing all of his debunking in 1924. The exact date of his visit is not noted. It's not 100% for sure. Some people who kind of want to sensationalize the whole thing say that he was there for a seance on Halloween night. But he was apparently responsible for the name, leaving somewhat bewildered by the home's features and coining the term the mystery house. So, of course, the people who were running the house, they took that and ran with it. They're like, fuck, yeah, it's the Winchester Mystery House. Totally. And since then, it's become a popular tourist destination, like I said, listed on the haunted house lists. As far as the ghosts that are actually haunting the place, (sighs) I couldn't really find many stories. You know, people go there and you're welcome to take pictures. The staff will not confirm or deny anything that you find in the photos, partially because they just don't have the time to look at everybody's pictures to say, oh, yeah, that's totally a ghost. But also because, come on. But one ghost that apparently a lot of people have seen and come into contact with is Clyde, the wheelbarrow ghost, who is kind of benign. (laughs) He just wanders around pushing the wheelbarrow. And no one can really place where he might be from if he's a construction worker who died on the site. There's no evidence of that. And if he was killed by a rifle, he doesn't seem like he's too pissed off about it.
1: Clyde. (laughs) Clyde. Here's my thing. I have to criticize this plot line. I mean, who invented Clyde? I understand the creepy groundskeeper angle, but give him a pair of rusty hedge clippers or a sharpened rake, but he gets a wheelbarrow. He's not going to run you over. It's it's like, ooh, (laughs) Clyde, you little bitch. What you going to do, mulch me to death? You going to bury me in a pile of leaves?
0: (laughs) Doesn't Clyde just sound like just such an old name? Like, this person was probably old since they were born, and just gentle. (laughs) Yes, just sweet little Clyde. Thanks, Clyde. Now, some things that I found interesting, while trying to find motives, while trying to figure out what was going on in this house before I really knew a lot about Sarah, I was wondering, is there construction that's actually used to confuse ghosts and spirits? Like, are there blueprints for anti-ghost buildings? And there are a few beliefs about this. There's actually a Chinese temple with a spirit wall or spirit screen in front of the main entrance that is supposed to prevent malevolent spirits from entering. There's a Japanese belief that spirits or demons will enter the home or plumbing in the northeast corner of the home. So placing entryways in that part of the home is avoided. There is the Stickney House in Illinois, which was built with rounded corners because of the thought that ghosts would linger or get stuck in the corners of the home. And of course, it's worth noting that some people did purposely make their homes with stairs and hallways that led nowhere and oddly angled hallways and windowless rooms. But that was also H.H. Holmes in his murder castle, and he did that on purpose. Another thing that kind of helps to skew and create this idea that the mystery house is so mysterious is that there are certain types of construction that make us believe that houses are haunted. It's a total psychological thing and it's a history thing. So close your eyes, and you think of a haunted house, and you're probably thinking of something that's from Victoria-era, a style home like that. And it's explained by a source that, in the U.S., a broader cultural movement away from Victorianism condemned all things of the later Victorian epoch as ugly, excessive, and un-American. The mansard roofs and gingerbread accents that made Victorian homeowners so proud were now mocked as indicative of new money and ostentation. After World War I, there was also a really big clash with that style of home. And then as visual mediums, photography, magazines, and TV came to be more available, the old Victorian homes were settings for the creepy houses, Psycho, Adam's Family, so on. So, the Winchester House Was this style to like the nth degree? (laughs) So, of course, it's going to kind of get lumped into the psychological idea that Victorian homes are haunted. In regards to some of the stories and the highlights of the Winchester tour, I know one big thing is Sarah Winchester's secret seance room. Ooh. But we know from past episodes and with how much we've talked about mediums and seances and spiritualism that seances were not really secret. They were like parties. They were get-togethers. It was, hey, come hang out with me while we talk to some ghosts. Let's see what your Aunt Millie is up to. So there was really no need for a secret seance room. It's total bullshit. The one that they advertised as the secret seance room was actually more likely a gardener's room. And then a number of the home's features were made odd because they needed to accommodate for her ailing health and arthritis, including some of the smaller steps that were easier for her to walk up and down. And a lot of people do like to focus on the weird numbers in the house, especially with Sarah's apparent obsession with the number 13. There was a source that I came across that took a really deep dive into some of the details of the house and her apparent obsession with seven, eleven, and 13, and wrote this like almost Da Vinci Code type of thesis about Sarah being really into numerology and designing the home around mathematics and geometry and certain meaningful numbers. It's a lot. (laughs) And you are welcome to check it out in show notes. And if you are a math or numerology person, you will dig it. I did not. So (laughs) good luck to you if you go down that rabbit hole. And I'm not saying that person's wrong. We know that Sarah was very intelligent. She was certainly exposed to bright minds and ideas. And maybe she was a, a mathematician and it just wasn't brought up elsewhere. But I just, I'm not totally sold on that. I think maybe she just liked the number 13 and spiderwebs. Some people just are like that. Now, as the house is passed on ownership, the stories and the legends continue. While the house is on the National Registry of Historic Landmarks, the home is owned and operated privately and for profit, 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 profit. I mean, you are welcome to go and visit, and you'll, you'll probably end up with some weird feelings just because of the strange architecture. I mean, that's what fun houses do. They purposely make you feel claustrophobic. They purposely give you these ideas of longer hallways, of slanted rooms, and that's all psychological. But Sarah Winchester, she just really, she didn't have a Pinterest board. She actually had a house that she could make it happen on. So that's why I think that she's the queen of Pinterest. Exactly. And let's not discount just
1: plain old garden variety boredom.
0: Yeah. But that's the Winchester house. And I I hope that you guys enjoy it. And if you have gone, I hope you enjoyed your tour there. Apparently now they also have axe throwing um as a as a feature while you're visiting. Which if there are ghosts around, I don't know if I want axes flying too. No. (laughs) That's a choice that you have to make for yourself. And that's that. That's, that's my non-haunted, but no. Nope. That's just my non-haunted haunted house. I can't even try. I'm sorry.
1: No, the best part, you're right. Whether it was intentional or not, that woman kept a lot of families with roofs over their heads and food in their bellies. Mm-hmm. She 100% did. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think, you know, she gets a bad rap. She got, you know, the short end of that stick. She, I don't know. Fuck the haters. You do your thing, Sarah.
1: No, I don't think she's crazy at all. No, uh-uh.
0: And that's that. That's my story. I have to stop there. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep being mad about people <laughs> treating her so badly. This poor little old lady. That's all
1: right. I got plenty else for you to be mad at. So. Uh...
0: <gasps> all right, let's do it.
1: Woo, let's get angry together as a family, everybody.
0: So families do. It's what
1: families do. It's what family's all about. (laughs) But it is going to have to wait because I have just noticed the time and we are out of it. Yes, kids, once again, your noble hosts have turned this into a two-parter without meaning to.
0: (laughs) Whoopsies.
1: It happens. But not to worry, though. You're going to get your Christmas episode. We're not going to let this throw us off. Matter of fact, looking at the calendar, probably on Christmas Day, you'll get it. So we'll figure it out
0: best christmas ever
1: exactly you'll get us all wrapped up nice in a bow but all right keep listening for the outro that's going to tell you how to get a hold of us email blog where to find us on the old socials we love hearing from you and this is where the catchphrase goes that's right bye
0: thanks so much for listening As a reminder, you can check out our sources for each of the episodes at show notes, along with any supplemental things we think you might enjoy.
1: Visit us on our blog at youtotallymadethatup.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at YTMTUpodcast and on Instagram at youtotallymadethatup. Feel free to contact us on those platforms, and you can also email us. That address is youtotallymadethatup at gmail.com.